When I was a wee lad, a young lad, I, uh, when I was younger, some of you already think I'm kind of young. When I was young, young, I uh, was in 4-H. How many of you guys know about 4-H? Raise your hand if you heard of 4-H. Okay, so 4-H, if you don't know, is this uh, uh, program for uh, young, young people, teenagers, kids, and it's designed to get them involved in things like agricultural um, practices and, and livestock and farming and woodworking and crafts and sewing and, you know, like the whole gamut. Like, it's all that kind of hands-on stuff. And it also teaches invaluable lessons. Well, I was in 4-H when I was a kid in Ohio, which I lived in Clark County, which is where 4-H started, in case you don't know. So, like, it was like, I kind of had to, so especially since the guy who ran our chapter in the area went to my church and he was best friends with my dad. So when I was in 4-H, one of the first years I went, I built a chessboard, which Naaman and I played on last night. It's right here. When I was 11 years old, I built this. It opens up with pieces inside and all that. And, well, when I say I built it, I mean my dad. (laughs) (laughs) My dad did a lot of the work. Granted, I did my fair share of it. It was, it was my idea. It's my idea. I wanted to do it. Actually, I'm not even sure if it was my idea. Anyway, I have the chessboard, okay? And, and, it, and it has my name inside of it, okay? So, and I have the ribbons. Okay, so my, my dad maybe did a lot of it. But it got me to state. Because an adult built it. I mean, it <laughs> but that's not all I did. I, I didn't just I didn't just do this. I also took pigs. I took pigs. Oh, yeah. Here's a cute picture of me as a kid with my chessboard. Oh. So I also took pigs, and, and I was trying to find a photo of me walking a pig around the fair, Clark County Fair, but I could not find one for the life of me. But I have ribbons here that prove that I was involved. And I took pigs for a couple of years. Now, my first pig I took was named Samson, but he, uh, much like the real Samson, didn't make it very long in life. Um, he, he died a little earlier. Well, to die, I'm not sure. He got sick enough to where I think he got processed. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and so John, being the nice farmer guy that he is, um, Lent me one of his pigs, and I named him Gabriel. Now, my dad wanted me to name my pig Kevin Bacon, because he thought that was funny. I didn't know who Kevin Bacon was. It wasn't funny to me. So I named him Gabriel, and uh, he, he did fine, except the time he knocked me off the fence, which was me. But I, I took pigs, and I couldn't keep them at my house. I, we didn't really have the property and the setup for it, but John Linder was a hog farmer, so he had the perfect setup for taking care of pigs. And so I left my pig there, and that's where I learned to take care of animals. I learned all the different cuts of meat. I learned how to, to wash the pigs and take care of them, that they sweat a lot when they're hot. Actually, they don't sweat. That was a trick question. You know, the saying sweat like a pig is not actually real. Now, horses, on the other hand, they sweat. And I tell you what. So I was... About my teenage years, I couldn't technically get a job yet because I wasn't old enough. But, you know, I grew up, I was, like, learning how to work on this farm. And so I was like, hey, John, why don't I come and work for you and I'll do some work and you give me money? 
And he's like, okay, we'll see how it goes. So he got me uh, set up with this really cool, like, like, I don't know how many horsepower it was, but a really cool gas power washer. And uh, my job was to spray out the inside of this hog barn. I mean, it's, I don't know, 300 feet long, a ton of stalls, and it has slatted floors with a pit underneath so that all the pigs' byproducts can uh, be washed away. <laughs> um, needless to say, it smelled quite, quite bad. It was probably the worst smelling place I've ever spent an extended period of time. And that to make matters worse, it was hot. Now, as a teenager, I was not the most physically fit person. And I wasn't necessarily the strongest teenager you've ever seen either. And not only have I never ran a power washer before, I've never actually done a hard day's manual labor in my life at this point. So I um, started, you know, I, I was really excited about doing this and making some money. I started, I, I didn't even make it a half hour. <laughs> it was so hot. And uh, to, to put it nicely, um, the power washer removed particles of waste and put them everywhere. So <laughs> it, was, uh, it was quite messy. It really was. And I, I was getting really hot, and I was not mentally prepared for the work. I was not hydrated enough for this work, and so I, I, I stopped working about a half hour, and I sat down, and I waited for my dad to embarrassingly come and get me. I really wanted to make some money. I, I just, power washing the hog barn was not for me at that point in life. So, you probably relate to the feeling of after a hard day's work, which was not that day for me. But after a hard day's work, especially if you're working manual labor, you come home and it feels really good to kick your shoes off and to sit down, right? To finally, at the end of the day, take that load off. And you see, the problem is with work, though, is even if you accomplish all you need to do for a day, it comes back. The next day, there's more work to do. That's just annoying to me anyway. And you see, the priests in the Old Testament had the exact same problem. And they, uh, we, we talked about it at the Good Friday service, where these priests would offer these animal sacrifices continually. They could offer sacrifices 20 hours a day, sleep for four hours and wake up, and they would still have to sacrifice for 20 hours a day. It was just never ending. And... We are going to take a look at the difference between these Old Testament priests and their continual working and with this nasty job. And we're going to take a look at the difference between that and Jesus. So if you would, go ahead and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. And not only are we going to be taking a look at the difference between normal priests and Jesus, but we're going to be taking a look at the many different ways that Jesus' resurrection changed his position. And what is he like now as a resurrected king? And obviously, what better day to talk about that than today, <laughs> on the day that we celebrate his resurrection. So we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 10. And um, Hebrews chapter 11, or sorry, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, excuse me, really lays out the misery, <laughs> the, the uh, continual process of this work that... Um, the priests were going through. Hebrews chapter 10, 11 says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time 
the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. And so these priests are a lot like us. They're in a similar position. They, they went to work every day doing the same messy job, offering sacrifices for sin, but the sin never went away. They, they could never accomplish that work. Which reminded a lot of me washing the barn, power washing the barn. It was hard work. It was messy work. Granted, I did not give it a fair shot. But had I finished that job, <laughs> right? Had I continued going on to finish power washing that barn, guess what? The pigs would come back in. The entire place would get totally messed up again. At the end of the season, it would need to be power washed again. I could power wash that barn every single day. And as long as the pigs are still there, it's going to get filthy. And that's just thinking about hog manure, this gross stuff spraying everywhere. It really reminded me of sin. You see the problem, right? The futility of these priests. Well, Jesus' death and resurrection fixes the problem. Look, look, we've read this on Friday, but I want to remind us. Look at verse 12. But he, having offered one sacrifice, meaning Jesus, for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool, footstool to his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified, those who are being made holy, those who believe. So now, these few verses that we just read are jam-packed with information. The author of Hebrews makes a few really big statements that I want to spend time. First of all, he mentions Jesus' sacrifice. And that's what we talked about on Good Friday, so I'm not going to labor that point. But it is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. So that means it is finished. No more daily sacrifices are needed. Then the author goes on to talk about his resurrection and glorification. So his death would not have been sufficient, as Tom read out of 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. If Jesus died but he wasn't resurrected, we should be pitied because it means nothing. And, and the author of Hebrews knows that. And it's not just his death, but his resurrection and his glorification, seating at, sitting at the right hand of God, ascended into heaven. That's what makes this whole new thing so powerful. Because he's alive forever. He's uh, established next to God. But notice, there's a small detail here. When I read it, it never really stuck out to me. Until this week, when I was reading Hebrews 10, it, it, really, it really made an impact on me. But I never noticed it before. And I've read Jesus sitting at the right hand of God a thousand times. But it never made this point. Look at verse 11. Every priest stands daily because their work is not finished. Look at verse 12. But he offered for sacrifice for sins for all time. And he sat down at the right hand of God. Why? Because his work was accomplished. He was sitting because there was no more to do. And he's not going to get up again until he comes back to fix everything. Now, there's also this other part of this statement. This whole sitting at the right hand of God is something I never really thought about before. 
The fact that it's accomplished, the, the fact that Jesus takes a seat, he, he's enjoying the rest of his accomplishment and his work, is really awesome to me. But not only that, what's up with this whole right-hand business? Right? What's up with the, the right hand being near to God? What is all that about? Well, I think there is a significant uh, verse that will help us understand. Turn with me to Jap- Genesis uh, chapter 48. And we're going to take a look at a story here that I think just shows you a little bit about the significance of the right hand. So in, in Genesis chapter 48, uh, we find Joseph who is the son of Jacob, so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had many sons, one of them being Joseph. And Joseph, by, or Jacob, by the way, is also known as Israel, which is where the nation gets its name. God changed his name. So Joseph has a couple sons, um, but he never received his blessing from his dad because, well, he was sold away as a child in Egypt. And so Jacob, or Israel, decides that he wants to bless his grandsons and give them a portion of, in God's possession. So to Ephraim and Manasseh, which are Joseph's kids, so Israel's grandsons, he wants to make sure that they're established. So look at verse 13 with me here. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right. So let's say that Kevin right here is is Jacob, right? So I'm Joseph. So Ephraim is on his right, and he's walking towards Joseph, which... This way would be Joseph's left hand, right? So Ephraim is on his right and Manasseh is on his left. And they approach, and they approach um, Jacob. And so um, he brings him there for a blessing. And Israel reaches out. So right as, as Joseph's coming up, Israel reaches out and he crosses his hands. He pulls a fast one on Jacob. And he puts his left hand on Manasseh and his right hand on Ephraim. And when Jacob saw this, look at verse 17. When Joseph saw this, excuse me, his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head and his left hand on Manasseh's head was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand. You can kind of just imagine he grabs it and he moves it from Ephraim's head. He says, moves it to Manasseh's head. He said, no, my father, this one's the firstborn. He probably thinks his old senile dad didn't know, right? He's like, no, no, this is the first one, firstborn. You should put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people. He too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he. And his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them that day and said, And your name, Israel, will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh, simply by just moving his hands. What does this show us? Well, it shows us that the right hand is extremely important, both in blessing and status, right? In this culture and time, the right hand is, it means a lot. It's the, it's the dominant side for most people, your right hand dominant, majority of the world. The right hand is this representation of someone's power and authority. Just look at how the right hand is talked about in the Old Testament, talking about God's right hand. Your right hand, O Lord, Glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Talking about the Exodus. Your, you have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. Psalm 89.13. Psalm 98.1. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right 
hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Isaiah 62, 8. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and his mighty arm, I will not give your grain to be food to your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. He swore by his right hand, by his power and authority. So you can see that the right arm, and especially in relationship to God, is a symbol of his power. And if we look at the New Testament, these words are used about Jesus in relationship to God's right hand. Look at Acts 5.31. I have it here on the screen for you. God exalted him, meaning Jesus, to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgiveness of their sins. And 1 Peter 3.21-22 says, And this water symbolizes baptism and now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, But the pledge of a clear conscience towards God saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So the point is, after Jesus' resurrection, after this day, he's in a pretty amazing spot with a lot of power. And a lot of authority. Sitting at the right hand of the Lord above angels and authorities and powers. Acting as judge and king and savior and intercessor. The resurrected Jesus is quite something to behold, isn't he? Pretty amazing. So what about us? What does the resurrection mean to us? Well, it means a lot, obviously. And we can really uh, see that in this verse that caught my attention. In Revelation 3.21, Jesus is talking to the church at Laodicea. And he says this to them, calling them back to a fiery passion, but then he leaves them with this. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious, And sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that is a promise from the glorified Jesus to us. That if we follow faithfully in this life, that there is a great place of honor with Jesus in his coming kingdom. Waiting for us. This means that if we are victorious, which is an interesting word. That means we continue faithfully no matter what even to the point of death. Revelation has a lot to do with martyrship, dying for your faith, going all the way to the end, giving up everything. If if you do that, you're victorious, and you will share in the inheritance with Jesus. He's offering us a seat with him. And that should humble us and make us really excited all at the same time, because that is cool. (laughs) That's really, I mean... When you think about it, Jesus sitting next to his Father in heaven, and he says, here, you can sit with me too. That's pretty cool. So let's circle back around. All the way to where we started in Hebrews 10, because especially with Revelation on our mind, it means that we need to take this seriously, right? Look at what Hebrews 10, 26 through 31 says. If we deliberately keep on sinning 
after we have received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sin is left. Whoa. But only a fearful expectation of judgment and of a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejects the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone who deserves to be punished, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's a reminder, if you ever heard one, to take seriously the gift that you've been given. Not to throw Jesus' sacrifice back in his face by continually, purposefully sinning. We are called to live holy lives, to strive towards holiness, and I know we're going to fail. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about, you know what, I know what I'm doing, and I'm going to keep doing it. That's just spitting right in Jesus' face, knowing that he set you free. So taking into consideration all that we've read today, I want us to walk away with these things on our mind, to, to, to take seriously all that we've read. Number one, don't squander Jesus' death and resurrection. That's what we just read. There is a great price for our salvation. And once we accept Jesus as our Lord, we have to live for him. We have to seek to live holy lives. That means we have to put the things of this world behind us. Our old selves are literally killed and crucified along with Jesus. We are reborn into his image. But... We must be wearisome not to let our works become the measuring stick of salvation. It's not about how much we can do. It's not about how good we are. Nothing except Jesus' sacrifice saves us. We cannot find our own way to God. It is merely the spiritual change that happens within us when we accept Jesus that calls us to holiness. The byproduct of this change is our lives being different. So number two... The work is finished. Jesus is on his throne. As we maneuver this age, and we're going to run into difficult times, we can remember that God ordained Jesus to the highest seat of authority in the universe. Of course, God is the head of Christ. So right, right below God, the highest seat, the, the, the most glory that anyone could ever receive, Jesus is there. He is above everything in this world. He's already taken care of it. And we can rely on him. We can know that to get through tough times. We can remember his accomplishment, his work of salvation. We know that because he's seated on the throne. He's taken a seat. The work is accomplished. Number three, look forward to the reward of victory. As we read it in Revelation 3, if we persevere, if we are victorious, there is a place waiting for us. It is prepared. A great place next to Jesus and his Father, who is the creator of the universe. In the future, 
when the resurrection comes, when our resurrection comes, our turn to be chained, Jesus was the first fruits, as Tom said. Our turn is coming soon. And when that happens, we are going to be alive forevermore. We are going to be free from death. The world will no longer be subjected to the pitfalls of sin. Everything wrong with the world is going to be made right. Just like God intended it to be in the beginning. Do we not have a great hope? Do we not have a great hope? (laughs) Think about it. Do we not have a great king? Do we have an awesome God? Yes, we do. I hope that this day reminds you of the amazing act of love and power that was demonstrated to us through Jesus' death and resurrection. So let that truth resound in your heart, strengthening you and encouraging you. Let's rely on that in the tough times, the good and the bad. Let's share that with others, those who are trapped in darkness, who need hope. That is the truth that's going to set them free. I want you to pray with me this morning. God, Father, Creator, thank you so much for bringing your son back to life and for giving him this position of authority. What amazing work you've done. And Jesus, thank you so much for your victory, your obedience, your steadfastness. I pray that you strengthen us. And it's in your name, the authority of your glorified name that we pray. Amen.